0: So, anybody wants to read the first one? Anybody can go for it.
1: We are protectors, not protesters.
0: We are protectors and we're not protesters. And it's important for us to remember, why are we here for? What, what's our purpose here? Protect the water. Water. To protect the water and also to stop what? The pipeline. the pipeline, right? So it's important for us to kind of ground ourselves under the under this guideline of we are here to protect water, we are here to protect the folks that are here. We're not here to scrap with the cops. Uh, is us scrapping with the, with the cops or getting into it or like being like, "Oh, you did this. Is that going to actually do anything to our goals? No. no. Right.
2: What you're listening to is a training session for newcomers to the main camp at Standing Rock, led by organizer Ava Cardenas. You're about to hear a lot more from her and from that session very soon. I'm Kasia Mihailovich, producer at MTV Podcasts, and this is a special episode of The Stakes. Over Thanksgiving weekend last year, I went along with MTV's poet-in-residence Marcus Ellsworth to a beautiful and out-of-the-way place that came to be known simply as Standing Rock. We originally brought you this story in December of last year. A quick recap. The Dakota Access Pipeline is built to carry crude oil across four states, and it's owned by Energy Transfer Partners. In North Dakota, that pipeline passes just beyond the border of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe reservation. But the tribe considers that land to be sacred and objects to the pipeline's proximity to their source for fresh water, Lake Oahe. The pipeline actually goes right under the lake. In August of last year, people began setting up campsites at Standing Rock. They called themselves water protectors, and they were there to block the construction of the pipeline on sacred ground. While the camps initially had the blessing of the Standing Rock Sioux tribal government, that ended up changing. Two days after the Army Corps of Engineers announced that the pipeline would not be permitted at Standing Rock, the tribal council's chairman was telling water protectors that it was time to pack up and go home. That was in December, but it took until February of this year for the last camps to be broken down. And the Standing Rock Sioux say the subsequent cleanup cost them $540,000. On March 24th of this year, President Trump issued a memo announcing that the State Department had given final permission to proceed with the Dakota Access Pipeline through Standing Rock. And by March 28th, Energy Transfer Partners announced that there was crude oil in the pipeline under Lake Oahe. As part of MTV News' broader coverage of Earth Week, we wanted to bring you an update on this story. So we called Eva Cardenas. She's an organizer with IP3, the Indigenous People's Power Network. We met her at Standing Rock when we were there, but when I called her this week, she was on the street in Washington, D.C., getting ready for a march organized by the People's Climate Movement happening on Saturday, April 29th. Eva had this to say about the end of the Standing Rock camps.
0: When we arrived to the camp, we were asked by the local leadership to be there, and so that's why we joined. Um, at the same time, when December came around and we were told that we needed to pack up and leave, um, we went ahead and did that. And I feel like we continue to follow sort of this path of like we to come when when asked um, and to leave when asked. So I mean, I think that there were a lot of lessons lessons that were learned through Standing Rock. Um, and there's also like a lot of commitments that we have as part of the IP3 slash Ruckus team that we've made with primarily native youth. I think that there was a lot of learn of like a learning curve around like how do we how do we provide support for communities, especially indigenous communities, while at the same time respecting the sovereignty and recognizing that these are sovereign folks, right? Um, and so we've we you know, after the camp was closed down, like we didn't really see that as, oh, like this is the end of things, we need to like pack up and leave, but rather like that this is a continuation of the work that still needs to be developed around indigenous sovereignty and indigenous leadership. Um, so for us right now, we're working with different folks in different um, native communities around how do we provide support, but also how do we provide the trainings for native youth who really actually just like stepped up into the role, right? And like they're, even now they're still, pushing and continue to work around other different issues. And so um, for us, I think it's been more of an experience of like, how do, how do we continue the work in a way that makes sense, in a way that is productive, and in a way that's effective, um, where we're actually providing support.
2: So the struggle for the Earth's future continues, and you can find more coverage of Earth Week at mtv.com news. But don't leave just yet. We're about to take you back to a very cold November morning in Bismarck, North Dakota. Marcus and I are about to drive two hours to the main Standing Rock camp called Oshedi Sakawi, which at the time had an estimated 7,000 campers. This is Kasia in Bismarck, North Dakota. That's the sound of Marcus Ellsworth getting all the ice off of the windscreen, the wind, wind, windshield. I'm not very good at cars. Good job, Marcus. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning. How's it going? Cold. <laughs> but good. Oh, it's gonna get above freezing though today. Oh, that's lovely. Does that mean a lot oh, for please. someone who lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee? Uh,
1: theoretically, yes, but um, it's still gonna be cold. I okay. live.
2: Okay, let's go to Walmart and get some uh, hand warmers and stuff. Okay.
1: Yeah, let's get geared up for this. <laughs> Marcus here. This was how we began our first day in North Dakota before heading to the Ocheti shakoui Camp, which means Seven Council Fires and is the proper name for the Sioux people. We weren't sure how to pronounce it at the time. We learned that later in the camp. The camp sits just south of a police barricade on Highway 1806 and just outside of the Standing Rock Reservation. It's on the land where the Army Corps of Engineers authorized construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, despite objections and lawsuits from the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Two hours after scraping frost from the windshield and figuring out how to avoid the police barricades, we arrived at the camp. When we got there, we were told to go to Facebook Hill. It's called that because it's the one place where water protectors could get enough signal to, well, get on Facebook. A brief media orientation informed us that we could not film, record, or take pictures in the camp without explicit permission. We certainly could not just record or film around the camp in general. We also failed in one big way we want to acknowledge up front on this trip. We were meant to meet with local Sioux tribe members on Monday morning, but we got snowed in and could not drive back to Standing Rock. Okay.
0: Number two. We are peaceful and prayerful. Number three. You're non-violent. Number three. Isms have no place here. Isms have no place here. It's really (coughs) important. I know a lot of us, right, come in with a a certain amount of privilege. And let's just call it out. Privilege, having privilege is not a bad thing, okay? We're not asking people to be like, oh my God, I have privilege, no. We have privilege, let's just call it out. Some of us, right, financially, you know, whether it be like, because we're white, cis, man, some of us have more privilege than others, right? It's how we use that privilege, how we acknowledge that privilege, and how we use it for the benefit of our communities. How are we using our privilege to dismantle things? Uh, Number four, we are are nonviolent.
1: As has been reported, People come from all over the world to the camps near Standing Rock. But as you've been hearing, there are rules at the camp everyone is supposed to abide by, and they learn about those rules from the direct action trainings from IP3. As we stepped back out of the media tent, I saw a campsite with a trans pride flag flying proudly over a small structure. It's blue, pink, and white flanked by a pride rainbow flag and a pink, purple, and blue bisexual pride flag. We made it a point to stop by what we would soon learn is the Two-Spirit Camp, where we spoke with Andre Nunez, who gave us the lay of the land.
3: Tatanko, Hittika, Inajiwi, Lakoi, Machiapi, Andre Nunez, Machiapi. My Lakota name is Standing Strong Buffalo Woman, and my English name is Andre Nunez. And we are at the Ochechi-Shakoi main camp, at, um, and I'm um, part of the Two-Spirit Nation camp here. I have been here since about early to mid-August. I remember coming here for the first time early August, and um, this camp hadn't even started yet. It was, everybody was all crammed into sacred stone. And um, like a couple days before I left, I seen them start putting up teepees, and I came back like a week later and, um, this this camp was humongous there was so many people here and you know I've been here for a while and and you know uh, this camp has gotten down to so like so few of people you know it looked like like a desert here um, and I think after the North Camp raid and after some some of the stuff started to happen um, over at what they call Turtle Island or Turtle Mountain over here mm-hmm. you know a lot of people have been flocking here and and you know we need the numbers it's nice to have this these numbers you know so
2: so that you're describing there being like a lot of fluctuations. Is this is like the biggest the camp has ever been this, for yeah. you?
3: Yes, this is the, like I've seen it get to about maybe like seven thousand people, and I think now we have about ten thousand people here. So, and do you think the camp's going to continue to grow from this point on? It's starting to get colder, so I, I, and and I'm surprised it hasn't shrunk yet. <laughs> um, but I know um, there's some events coming up. Um, december 5th they said that we need to be out of here or they're going to be um they're going to be um using the force that they used to take down the north camp um when the north camp was up Uh, and i was i was at the north camp and i had my things there my tent and i lost everything so for our listeners can you uh, describe briefly what happened at the north camp so the north camp was put in place because it was like directly on the pipeline path and um some of the leaders here at camp decided you know hey we need people here you know let's move up here and and i was one of them that that you know moved all my stuff right then i was like okay i'm going back to camp i moved all of our my stuff and i was there we were there for almost a week Um, and then we got word that they're coming to raid the camp and and push us back to this camp and um so a lot of us were told the night before to get all of our sacred items or things that we wouldn't want taken and I did that and the next day like around noon like they they showed up and with 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 the the Elrad and just like all their 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 reinforcement you know the National Guard the cops and you know, I watched them as they were, you know, getting closer and closer to the camp. You know, they would they would sound off that LRAD machine, and and, and I gave my earplugs to elders, you know, and I, and I made sure some elders had their earplugs because they weren't, you know, they weren't going to stop.
2: What does that sound
3: like? It's just like a whole bunch of, like, beeps. It's like beeping noises, and it gets, like... like uh, really like if you get close to it it's like it can can, you know it can make your eardrum bleed you know your ears bleed it could damage your eardrum and so it's just like a series of like beeps and
1: just different sounds and people experience physical illness yes like not just the not just the ears but like nausea and and severe physical discomfort
3: yeah and i've had and i had a few friends that got arrested that day and i watched them take down my tent and You know, after, you know, they were supposed to let us come back to get our things, but that didn't happen. They threw all of our clothes in trash bins after they... Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss, but they, yeah, you are. okay, they, they 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 pissed and they shit on our on our on our things that were there. So a lot of our stuff, when we got it back, they were you know they were, you know you un, you know unravel clothes and like some some shit would fall out. Your clothes would be wet from all the piss, and you just uh-huh. smell the urine. Yeah, that was uh, and a lot of my stuff was pissed on. And so when they did bring our stuff, like I grabbed some stuff that was that looked clean and seemed clean, and I just left the rest. You know, I did, I don't have that means of washing my clothes all the time, so. Number five.
2: Respect
0: locals. Now, this is a really important one because I feel like sometimes people tend to forget that. Okay, we are here as guests. These are sacred grounds for a lot of people. If somebody tells you stop singing or stop beating your drum, please stop. If somebody, if you see something that's happening in camp, help out. Right. This is not a revolutionary personal experience. We're not here to just come and take the picture, right? And if you're here for that, then please pack up and go back, right? We need people that are gonna be here and are going to support. So if you have downtime, right? If you find yourself just sitting around and saying, oh, there's nothing to do, there's plenty to do. There's all of these other camps that are happening that need winterization. There's all the the help in the kitchens that needs to happen. We're not here to save anyone. Understand that we are not here to save people. We are here to support. And that's, that's our role. As allies, it is to support and not to come under this idea of like, I know better because I went to Harvard, I went to college, let me tell you what I learned. Like, we don't need that. We need people hands on deck, we need support.
1: To understand more about what that support means, we sat down with three organizers from a group called Indigenous Peoples Power Project, or IP3. Here's Ava Cardenas again, who told us her family moved to Georgia from Mexico when she was 10.
0: IP3 says for the Indigenous People's Power Project uh, that's part of RACA Society. It's basically a network of Indigenous trainers. Um, our reasoning behind that is that we acknowledge that our communities are oftentimes the ones that are the frontline communities. and. We want to provide resources and trainings for those folks, um, for the indigenous communities themselves to take lead and use those resources and navigate in a way that works best for them, rather than, you know, different environmental and nonprofit uh, communities parachuting in. We believe that movements are built from insider folks and up, not the other way around. And so based on that model, IP3 has, you know, been born, has been led uh, by indigenous uh, trainers. Uh, and we've been here through the request of the leadership here.
1: There's more cultures represented here standing against this pipeline than we've ever seen for any sort of action in the history of this land. Uh, what, is, what does it feel like to be a part of that, to come, to come and witness this, and to to actually be involved with it?
4: It's humbling, and it's inspiring at the
1: same time. This is Andre Perez. He's an indigenous Hawaiian and organizer.
4: And I think that I also see, a, a, for me, a consciousness that, yes, we're here to stand in solidarity with Oshedi Shakoin and the Seven Tribes, and the native people, but on one hand, it's also bigger than Standing Rock. This is about this is about Indigenous people coming together to confront this type of corporate power that exists everywhere and exploitation. And it's about self-determination and standing up for for justice. And as a Hawaiian, for me, um, it's also important to bridge the distance because I know that. That's where our collective power comes from, our unity. But I also came here to really witness and experience firsthand this type of oppression and repression and police brutality and the the organizing against it so that I can take home back to Hawaii this experience, this training, because we're having our own struggles. We expect to have... um, to have continued exploitation and oppression on our sacred lands as well.
5: Uh, So for me, yes, I really want to say that it is is really humbling.
1: And this is George Pletnikov Jr. from Alaska.
5: You know, everybody's coming from all corners of the world to to bring support because it is, just as Andre said, it's, it's bigger than just Standing Rock. It's all our people coming together and supporting one another. And, you know, being at this camp, you know, seeing how we're all so supportive, we're checking in on each other, um, you know, making sure we're all good. And, you know, it really, really uh, opens my eyes to, like, you know, how to be a a, a better human and and how to, um, you know, think better about the, the people on the other side over there at the pipelines building them. You know, I spent a lot of my time just developing a type of hatred for that, but... Um, Seeing this right here, I'm starting to develop more of a compassion and um, trying to understand uh, how people can do some things uh, as bad as they can be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've only been here for like a week or so. Um, But I think for me, it's just kind of been a really rejuvenating kind of experience just to see the amount of love and support amidst all of the things that are happening. Because if you, you know, for folks that are here on the ground and for folks who are listening, like this is some real, real shit, right? Like we have people that are actively being violent towards communities here. Um, And I think for a lot of folks who are not Native, for folks who don't or have the privilege of like being in other spaces, who don't have to think about getting shot by the cops, who don't have to think about repression from the state. For them, it's a rude awakening, but I think for us it's just like this is a normal state of of the response from the state, right? Um, But for me, seeing sort of like even amidst all of that going down, the love and support that people have for each other here, the the willingness to just put everything aside and come here for like months, right? Like Andrea and, and George are gonna be here for a long time. Folks have been here for a long time. And so like the love that you have for for our survival as people, not just like as native folks with other native folks, but like just the respect for life itself. Um, that like knowing that some people have not lost that, that touch with humanity is, is really rejuvenating. And it gives me hope when I think about my daughter and I think about all our little kids. Um, that are coming up, that we still have people that are willing to like sacrifice and fight for us. Yeah, it's cold as shit, but it's also like really amazing to be here with people that like it does feel your heart and soul. So yeah. Number six. No weapons or what could be considered weapons. Weapons, right. Weapons. So, no weapons. When you go to an action, it's super important that you all leave your camping knives. that you all leave anything that we co- that could be considered a weapon. Who here has heard about uh, what happened last Sunday at the bridge? Mm-hmm. Right. So, just so you all know, right, our folks were peaceful. Our folks were just trying to move barricades out of, the, out of the bridges and the cops just started throwing concussion grenades and water cannons. It doesn't take a lot from them to go up and out. right? They're already at 100 in terms of being agitating and just in terms of being aggressive. So it doesn't take much for them to kind of like step more even to that. So please just be mindful of those things. Okay, do we have anybody from medic? Yes? We're going to have uh, some... We're going to come and do the training around camps and what to expect when we're in the, in the front lines of an action or, you know, how to respond to the usage of pepper spray. Hey, everybody. My name is
6: Candace. I'm a street medic from Portland, Oregon, and I have come to just talk with you all for a few minutes about chemical weapons. Uh, Many of y'all just said you heard about Sunday, so you know that the cops are using them. Uh, The two most common chemical weapons we're going to see out there are pepper spray and tear gas. Uh, We don't get all hung up on the distinctions between different kinds of chemical weapons. The cops are often changing the formula, the color, the deployment, all of that stuff is just a bunch of mind games to get us all freaked out. So I'm just going to talk about chemical weapons because the preparation's the same the first aid in the field is the same and what we do afterwards is the same. Anybody ever been sprayed by pepper spray in here? A few hands. How's it feel?
0: It's unpleasant.
6: (laughs) Painful. Is it scary? Yeah. 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 Pain and fear is what these weapons are used for. They are used to cause pain, they are used to cause fear, so that the cops can get us to stop fighting, right? They can get us to break apart and back up and um, stop this work. And so our job in preparation and in helping each other and afterwards is to take care of both of those things, the pain and the fear, in equal measure. And so that's what I want to talk about here. The first thing we're going to do is teach you all how to do an eye flush. Uh, Can I have somebody stand up and volunteer just to... Um, And you are somebody who has just been pepper sprayed, and you are um, bummed out, man. Your eyes are closed, you're squinting, uh, you're in some pain, okay? And I am your uh, friend, although you actually don't know me in this scenario, okay? Uh, Maybe you're helping somebody you don't know. Can you see anything at all? You can't see anything. You're squeezing your eyes shut. You're opening them to try and figure it out, but it's horrible. Okay. So go for it. Uh, okay, <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> 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 hey, my name is Candace. I'm a medic. Can I help you with that? Please Have do. Can I <laughs> put my hand on your shoulder here okay. and guide you? Can you bend your knees and put your hands on your knees so your head is out from the
1: line? That evening, we met up with Liz George from Detroit, Michigan. We talked in our rental car as the rain came down. Liz came to the Ocheri Shakowin camp to support a cause she deeply believes in.
7: Um, my name is Liz George, and I'm from Detroit, Michigan.
1: So, Liz, um, it's our understanding that you were actually out there on the front lines when um, the police decided to, to become much more aggressive and violent um, against the water protectors that were, I believe, clearing a roadblock at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how, how the that action that night started and where it wound up turning?
7: So I can't fully speak to how it started. From what I have heard, um, there was a group that decided to that they wanted to clear that roadblock because there's two burnt vehicles there Um, and then there's a police barricade which is basically blocking residents from access to emergency services. Um, To get to anywhere they need to they have to like reroute and it takes a lot longer. So that was the purpose of that, um, as far as I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was down at the medic tent for something else and when the first group of people who were hit got started coming in. So my friend and I immediately went out there. I grabbed uh, my cameras, and we went out there. So I was out there just shooting for the most part. Um, and when we got there, it was just chaos. Um, there was just, we like, right off the bat, people being hosed down. There was... Um, tear gas canisters that were being thrown over to our side they were throwing like these incendiary rounds which were sparking fires which people on our side were putting out shooting people with rubber bullets that was the first thing that like when when they came down to medic when i was down there that was like the first casualties that started coming in where people hit with rubber bullets people sprayed in the face um i have images of the police macing people um so that was like the whole night and we were there for like I would think we were there from about 7 to about 4 in the morning. Uh, a lot of people just standing there and getting hosed down. There's a girl who's just standing there and dancing. And they were just spraying her down. Um, Kana, my really good friend, she was on the front line. because So the front line was a group of people who were just holding up shields while the police were hosing them down. And they were also getting hit with rubber bullets. So every time she would kind of pull down her um, shield police would aim his gun at her and she'd pull the tarp over her head and start getting hit with rubber bullets. And then she'd pull it down again and he'd aim it at her face again. And again, she'd have to cover up. And eventually they got to a point where like her and the girl holding up the tarp decided to take off their goggles and their mask. And um, they just looked him in the eye. And that kind of like, I think they're both two young girls that kind of like humanized them. Mm -hmm. for him. And he put down his gun. But all night before that, they were being pelted with, you know, rubber bullets and hose down and she was soaked. And it was really cold out there that night. Um, It went down to the last I saw was like 25 degrees. I didn't get hit by the water. I did get tear gassed multiple times. Um, I still have a really bad cough from that. And I I, like am struggling to breathe. But um, that all started Sunday night. Monday morning, we were in Mandan at an inaction. Um, we marched around the town. We were in front of the county, um, Morton County Jail, and a bunch of people were arrested, but they definitely knew all of our faces, or at least I think that's one of the things that kind of, like, one of the reasons they targeted us. But that night, uh, my friend Kana Newell and I, we went into Mandan because we were on our way to Bismarck and we stopped at the rice bowl to eat. And then we paid and we were on our way out and just as we were paying we noticed two cops come sit down. Um and we didn't we didn't really want to say anything to them. We didn't want to engage with them. So we were just going to walk out and he called us over and he kind of was like, "Are you guys planning to spend the night in Mandan tonight or are you planning to spend the night are you going back to camp?" Which is like kind of a strange question. I don't really understand what his motive behind that was. Um, So we're like no we're actually heading to Bismarck and then that we just he started asking more questions like so how long are you guys planning on staying here in you know at camp and we said indefinitely um, until hopefully the pipeline is shut down and he said well that's just not going to happen and so then. I asked, like, why do you why do you say that? And he basically said, well, if you guys are, you know, creating disturbances in Mandan, you're not going to get anyone's support. And I said, okay, I understand that. And that's actually really helpful for us to know because we can take that back to community and we can constructively talk about that in our community. And then it kind of went from there. And then I, and then I also said, well, the reason we were in Mandan was because we wanted to make a statement to President Obama and to the, the county that the police brutality and the attack that happened the night before was just not okay. And he responded with, I think it was okay, and I think it was necessary. And that's when things started to get like a little, okay, this isn't like a friendly conversation at all. So we responded with, you know, like 200 of our people were injured. A girl's arm may be amputated. We have severe like injuries where people are in the hospital. And he responded with, um, well, two of my officers were attacked. And two of my officers are injured. And I said, well, 200 of ours are injured. And we were unarmed and unprotected. And he says, we have no record of a single person on your side being injured. And at that point, he was, like, very much, like, just talking at us and talking over us. And he would ask questions but not really listen to our answers. And so Kana just said very politely, could you just hold space for us to speak? Um, Because you're... Asking questions where you're not letting us answer. At that point, he was kind of like, well, if you don't leave right now, we're going to arrest you. And so that's when I pulled out my camera and started recording because the word arrest was like, it was so out of place. It feels to me as though they were trying to pick a fight and make an example out of us in that restaurant, uh, which they did. And um, multiple people in that restaurant were like, yeah, yeah, and, you know, yelling at us to go home which as a person of color is a really hard thing to hear. And the reason, like, we were targeted and called over was because on my back I was wearing a badge that says, Water is Life. And um, when we were in the car, I was, again, shaking. So in the car I was like, "Kana, can you please just take that badge off my back? Like, because we were going to go to Walmart. And she said, so she took it off, and she said something very powerful, which was that, um, they pulled us over, and they pulled us over to talk because you have that badge on your back. And there are a lot of people in this country that can't just take that badge off. I'm here as an, an ally to the indigenous people, but it's their vo- voice that I um, would love to hear. <laughs> so, And I hope my voice is is, um, is representative of what they want to be spoken to the world, you know,
0: Number seven. Property damage does not get us closer to our goal. Right. What is our goal here? Protecting
6: to protect the water. water.
0: To protect the water and stop what? High high high. Right. So is breaking the cop's window going to do that? Mm-hmm. No. Number eight.
1: All campers
6: must get an orientation.
0: So if you have not gotten your orientation, please go to the orientation. They will also like have information around different actions that are happening, right? Just, again, we're here to support and support looks very different. Support doesn't always mean that you get to go to the front lines and be, you know, like a revolutionary, right? Revolution happens in all kinds of ways. We have a nice sign in our kitchen that says everybody wants to be a revolutionary but nobody wants to do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just be mindful of that. <laughs> Number nine.
1: Direct action training for all in
0: Action. Okay. This is your direct action training.
1: We also talked to Ava again. In our car, by the colorful yurt she sleeps in with the other IP3 trainers. This time, we wanted to hear from her why she has made the decision to come all the way out to North Dakota to support the water protectors. The call to, to come out here to the camps and to, to be on the front lines, to be participating in these actions against the pipeline, it requires a person to to step away from... From the life that they have known from like you know their 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 job their family um how are, how are you able to to come out here and and dedicate so much energy and time to being in the camp and helping with the trainings
0: so when i started to organize right my daughter was three and so it was a whole like push and pull around like you're not gonna be a good mother because you're not here right and for a really long time that was like the guilt tripping that was happening and i was like damn maybe i am fucking it up maybe i'm not being a good mom but i think that as i've sort of become more involved and more empowered because part of the work that I do is, yeah, I'm empowering other people, but I'm also empowering myself as a woman, right? And it's really amazing work because it's transformative. Like, even though people say, like, oh, like, I'm here just for a bit, like, it transforms who you are as an individual because there's so many contradictions that you are forced to kind of come in collusion with and kind of, like, unpack.
2: You mentioned um, coming here transforms people because it makes people... Um, confront a lot of contradictions that we've grown up with.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: What did you mean by that?
0: Well, for me, it's like oftentimes, especially after Trump, I think, like, for me, that was one of the things that when I came here, you know, I remember, like, thinking, like... (sighs) I remember thinking, like, if I can only organize my people in a way that they can be empowered and that they have the tools and they can move, then they'll be good. And the reality is, like, what we're seeing now, right, with Trump and all this that's happening, it's, it's bigger than that. It's, it's about, like, even talking to white folks and saying, like, listen, we need to work this shit out. We need to work out why 63% of you all still border for that crazy fucker. Like, we need to figure out what's going on. Like, where is the disconnect, right? And I think for a lot of us, it's been more about, like, we're working with the communities. Like, me as a Chicana, as a Mexicana, as a migrant, I've worked with my communities, right? But I also need to be a little bit more intentional about reaching out to poor white folks. Like, sometimes I'm like, that's not my job. My job is not to educate white people, and it is not my job either. But my job is also part of organizing if I want to be... If I want to be a good organizer, my job is to also make sure that we don't forget about the poor white folks. There is work that needs to happen that hasn't happened. And having just as clear conversations, and sometimes it's really tiring, right? Like we're having to have these really intense conversations in the heat of the moment, but they're important because otherwise what's going to happen is we're going to fragment again. And we cannot have fragmentation at this point, I feel like at this point, we need it's all hands on deck. Mm-hmm. so, yeah, that's what I meant, like, just walking contradictions, right, like, we're gonna talk the talk we have to walk the walk, and sometimes we're not gonna like the, the, the type of walk we're in but it's something that we're just gonna have to confront yeah. mm-hmm.
3: Number 10.
2: No children in potentially dangerous situations.
0: Right. Taking kids to an action. <laughs> Taking our pets to an action. Please try not to do that. If you're here with a crew, figure out who can babysit. Last time when there was an action at the bank, somebody took a puppy and tied him to a tree. Um, that's not okay. Animals and children sometimes don't get a saying what happens in those actions and the cops are not going to be like, oh, that's a puppy. Let me not spray it.
1: We drove back to our motel on the edge of Bismarck that night as the rain turned to sleet. We talked about how unbelievably dark it was outside compared to our home cities. Overnight, a snowstorm had moved in and made leaving our hotel's parking lot impossible. We thought about the warm yurt that Ava, Andre Perez, and George slept in, and of Liz George, who told us she's still sleeping in her car. There are many questions about the future of the pipeline, the water protectors, and the people living downstream. The Army Corps of Engineers has issued an order for everyone to leave the camps by December 5th. North Dakota's governor, Jack Dalrymple, has also called for the camps to evacuate due to severe winter weather. So, what will people do if a forced eviction
5: happens? Until this pipeline comes to an end, I don't plan to go anywhere.
0: This is nothing new. Them using force and, like, kicking people out. Like, this is, again, their normal state. And I think as as Native folks or people of color, we're sort of, like, we're used to this response. So it's definitely nothing new. We know you're apparently saying you're coming down December 5th, and, you know, we're here to show the world who is actually being violent, who's actually coming for a riot, right? We've been peaceful throughout this whole time and the repression from the state continues to be a violent response. And so for us it's like we are going to stick through it. We are going to continue to fight. The pipeline is just one of the many issues that we're fighting. And just because they're sending in a notice saying that they're gonna kick us out, like let's remember who this land belongs to. It doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to the state. It belongs to the people who were here first, right? And that's the native folks
3: they might clear everyone out but they might not you know there's we have you know there's strength in numbers and there's you know close to 10,000 people here now so and I don't think that everyone is planning on moving so there's gonna be a you know force here (laughs) I I took that I took that you know responsibility um, before the spirits in a ceremony that I'd be here to help protect my camp
4: I think that um, what it boils down to is sheer numbers of people just resisting, refusing to comply. Um, I don't think anybody from this camp is going to just pack up and leave. Um, we can be sure of that. The people are so grounded in, uh, on this land, and the and the cause and the purpose of protecting water, because water exists everywhere.
7: We've got a lot of people who are very educated and know exactly what to do in there really working to make sure that no one, no one is left behind. You contribute in, in, in the way you can. Community just kind of lifts each other up and make, looks out for each other.
0: My grandfather, my, my, he he's already transitioned, but think he, he often said, you know, the way that we move here, this is a chess game we have to move in like, we have to move our chess pieces. Like we cannot make like one play and then they'll be done. Like that's, it's way too easy for that. So it's definitely a lot about like strategy and like thinking and scheming. And I love to scheme and like think about possibilities and just shoot the shit. Because I feel like that's how, like, that's how you build movements, right? Talking smack and like cracking jokes. Even though they might be, <laughs> might be difficult times, like that's what gets us through, but also like allows us to kind of think of the possibilities. Even if it doesn't happen now, it's just like down the line, what are, what are we capable of and how do we move in this world? Number 11.
6: We to keep each other accountable.
0: Right. Number 12. This is a ceremony at recording. Right. Now, please, would you go into a church playing a drum or just like dancing or like acting no hooligan? No, act like your grandma's here. That's the best thing that I've heard from people. If your grandma saw you acting a fool, would she be okay with that? No, so like, just pretend that your grandma's always with you and just hold yourself accountable to that.
2: That was me, Kasia Mihailovich, and MTV News' Marcus Ellsworth reporting from North Dakota last November. Thank you for listening to this special Earth Week edition of The Stakes. We're going to be bringing you more special episodes on this feed from time to time. So please stay subscribed. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MTV Podcasts because we have GIFs and audiograms and little videos for you from all of our shows, including The Stakes and The Rookie Podcast and Happy, Sad, Confused. You can also find us online anytime at our beautiful and newly redesigned website, podcasts.mtv.com. Please check it out. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailović for the MTV Podcast Network. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Can you tell me your names?
7: My name is Daniela. My name is Arabella.
2: And how old are you guys? I forgot to ask.
7: I'm eight. I'm
0: ten.
2: Is there anything that you want people who are listening to know about Standing Rock and about why you came all the way here?
7: I think we came here because, like, they're having a hard time, like, not wanting the policemen to dig a hole in their water so they want to stand up for
5: themselves and say, no, we're not going to let you dig in our water.